Turn your Bibles to Galatians 5. Let's read the text again. And uh, Galatians focuses primarily on the controversy of how one is found acceptable before God. And every religion in the world that believes there is a God believes that there's a way to become more acceptable to those gods. And they all have to do with something you're supposed to do to make you more acceptable or to make you acceptable at all. Christianity also deals with the issue of being acceptable in God's sight. But uniquely, uniquely teaches that you can't do anything about it. <laughs> that you're so, you're so bad and so helpless that you can't solve that problem. You could never make yourself acceptable before God only by the work of God himself and only by the righteousness of God given to us in toto in such a way that it could never be taken away are we found acceptable before God. And specifically through the work of Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life are we by faith given his record as our record in heaven. And his sacrifice on the cross washes away our sin and pays the penalty that we should have paid. So negatively speaking, the penalty of our sin is paid for, so our sins are wiped off our slate. And positively speaking, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us by a divine accounting procedure through faith. And so we stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, found as acceptable to God as His own Son, Jesus Christ, is. That's amazing. That's the major point that is being made in Galatians. But you can't stop there. Because once you receive that righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, once you believe in this good news and receive Christ as Savior, your life is also transformed. You're born again. The the life of the Spirit of God becomes your life. He takes up residence in your life. So these two things always go together. There are two mysteries to the Christian life. One is how we're found acceptable before God. That's called justification. The other is how we live life. That's called sanctification. How we're being set apart increasingly by the Spirit. And we've seen that unlike any religion in the world, we don't just walk with God or before God. We walk in God and God walks in us. This is a very intimate relationship with him that transforms us by this relationship. So let's look at it again in Galatians 5 as Paul takes up the life of the spirit of the believer. So I say, says the apostle Paul, live by the spirit, or as we know it literally says walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you go to the Amen retreat. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I misread that. But let's just take a little break here. Gentlemen, the Amen retreat, come on. you got Brian Loretz, one of the best preachers around. You get to spend the whole weekend with him and with each other. Would you get yourself signed up? Is there something around the tables you can sign up on? What do they do? Back there, back table. I'll remind you at the end. Sorry, let's get back to the Bible. (laughs) Who would think of interrupting and reading the Bible like that? Never do that in church. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. 
sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Okay, we, we've been focusing especially on this verses two, 22 and 23 on the fruit of the Spirit. And we see that it's one fruit it's one life, but it has many different facets. It's like a diamond with many different faces or facets, uh, but it's one diamond. And so it is with the fruit of the Spirit. And you can look at the life of the Spirit from many different angles, and you'll see different things. You'll see love. You'll see joy. You'll see peace. We saw last week you'll see patience. And today we want to see that you'll see kindness, that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's amazing how universal the language of kindness is. Mark Twain once said that kindness is a language which the deaf can hear and the blind can read. Uh, Seneca, the old classical uh, philosopher, said, wherever there is a human being, there is an opportunity for kindness. Billy Graham said, Often the only thing a child can remember about an adult in later years when he or she has grown is whether or not that person was kind. And Albert Schweitzer was talking one time about the power of kindness in our relationships with other people. And he said, Constant kindness can accomplish much. As the sun makes ice melt, kindness causes misunderstanding, mistrust, and hostility to evaporate. As Henry Drummond said, kindness is the golden key that unlocks the hearts of others. How often is it when you really wanted to persuade somebody of something and you came on like gangbusters and all you did was just cause their resistance to go up? Am I talking about anybody's wife? Uh, you come on like gangbusters and all you get is resistance, either active resistance or passive resistance. Uh, and yet when you simply are kind to someone. It's amazing how a lot of times all of the defenses are, are melted. Uh, and you've seen this in the workplace, you've seen your marriage, and yet over and over again we find ourselves tempted to the opposite of kindness. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But the first thing we want to see then is that the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. It is by the Holy Spirit that we would fulfill the wisdom that all these people, most of them non-Christians, have noticed about the trait of kindness. It is the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sons of God uh, who, more than anybody else, uh, know kindness because it comes by God's Spirit. What is kindness? Kindness would simply be a state of being of sympathy or forbearance. And we'll look at the two major ways in which kindness is expressed in just a few moments. But let's look, first of all, at the very root of kindness, which is 
in the very character of God himself. The first thing you want to notice is that God is kind. Uh, You remember that David said in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. The NIV translates that that word is actually kind. Taste and see that the Lord is kind. And then in Psalm 136, you have uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is, it translates once again, good. But literally it's uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is kind. So kindness begins with the very character of God. And I want you to turn with me to Titus chapter 3 for just a moment. And let's look at a very specific statement about the kindness of God. This will be page 1971. 1971, Titus 3. Paul says to Titus in verse 3 of chapter 3, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Wow, what a description that verse is of the the life apart from Christ. There you have it. Foolish, disobedient, envious, malicious, hateful. Verse 4, but when the kindness... Same word. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So you see the kindness of God in verse 4? He took us where we were and we deserved only His justice and He saved us. And how did He save us? He saved us by His mercy. He saved us by offering His own Son as a sacrifice. He saved us by giving us of Himself. He invested in us His kindness in coming from heaven through Christ coming from heaven by His Holy Spirit, taking up residence in our lives. That's the kindness of God. It is truly remarkable. And there's no one like Him. But notice secondly in this whole area that God's people are to be kind. So God is kind. That's where kindness comes from. That's what defines kindness. Look at God and what He's done. And then look at the the teaching of the Scriptures that we are to be as He is. He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, not becoming conceited, not provoking other people, not envying other people, but imitating God, being kind. Let's look for just a moment at one of the texts listed here at Matthew 5. And this is right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And He is teaching, Jesus is teaching His disciples that the life of, that is of God is not exactly as the rabbis taught it. The rabbis taught a lot of good things, a lot of true things, but they didn't take it far enough. And Jesus is trying to strip off the rabbinical veneer that was on, placed on top of the Torah, the Bible. And so the rabbis were only teaching the Bible through this veneer, this rabbinical veneer, this, this uh, sort of uh, corpus of rabbinical sayings through the years. 
And Jesus was stripping all that away and getting back to the Bible and saying, this is what it really means. And he comes to the point of describing what love really means. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, and this, of course, is what the rabbis would have said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now look how loving and kind the Father is. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Did you notice uh, when you came to, to Amen this morning? Of course you didn't notice. It was dark. But did you notice the rain just seemed to be equally everywhere? It wasn't on Mr. Jones's yard, but not on Mr. Jackson's yard. He didn't go to church. Uh, <laughs> did you notice the rain was not segregated uh, on, to fall just on the righteous lawns? That rain fell on all the lawns, even those who hate God. The rain came down and the sun will come up on them in just a few moments. So if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? <laughs> if, you just, if you take people who rip you off and extort you, they're good to their friends. You ever notice that? Gangs are good to their friends. Thieves are good to their friends. So what more are you as, uh, than a thief if you simply are good to your friends? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's saying, walk in the ways of your Father. Be like your Father. Show that you have His DNA. And this is one of the clear ways in which you do it. And if you look, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, you'll find that when Paul describes love, he says love is patient, love is kind. That is, love is sympathetic and love is forbearing toward those who sometimes are very difficult to deal with. And you'll notice that uh, in, in the lives of people that they can commend themselves to you by their kindness. I think that's what Billy Graham was saying that sometimes the only thing you remember about some people in your childhood, some adults in your childhood, are whether they were kind or not. Isn't that true? You didn't know if they were an expert lawyer. You had no idea that they were the best surgeon in town. You had no, no idea that they were a teacher of the classics at the university. None of that mattered to you. Only one thing, were they kind? And some people, fortunately, they lived long enough, and you did too, that you got to know them as adults. And even though they weren't very kind 25 years ago, now you're beginning to build a relationship with them. And thank God for that. But most people, you only know them by their kindness. And do you and I realize most people know you as to whether you are kind or not kind? It was true with the apostle. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, this is page 1879. Well, it's just one book before Galatians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at verse 3. And Paul says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path. So he's saying, he's saying, look, we've got a great message. But if we preach that message with a certain personality or a certain lifestyle, we're going to cause people to stumble. They're not going to get the message. But he's saying, he said, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather... As servants of God, look at this, we commend ourselves in every way, 
in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and look at this, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, and so on. So the Apostle Paul is saying, we commend ourselves to you as those who obviously labored hard. We obviously endured many sacrifices for the sake of this message that we're carrying. And we did not cause you to stumble by being the contradiction of the message in the way that we treated you. It's amazing. As one scholar has once said, his name is Frederick Faber, he said, kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning. And I bet if we polled everyone here who's a follower of Christ and we asked you how that happened, there would be a lineup of kindnesses uh, that were expressed to you in one way or another. It's true in my case. Lineup of kindnesses. And even if you're a person who likes to come at religion head first, you're very logical. You put everything in order. You come head first into, into your faith. Still, in a case like that, you'll find a series of kindnesses. If we want to be men of influence... We're only going to do it through kindness. I think that's clear and because it shows our relationship to God himself. Now, before we leave this point, I just want to mention a couple of things. There are certain things that are passed off as counterfeits to kindness. One, of course, is manipulation, sweet talk, like Delilah. Delilah got Samson to do all kinds of things through apparent kindness, but it wasn't at all. She got the poor guy strung up, you know. She got him captured by her sweet talk. Flattery is not kindness. Flattery is saying something untrue that is positive to another person. Encouragement is saying something that's true and positive to another person. The Bible encourages encouragement. The Bible discourages flattery. What's the purpose of encouragement? To build the person up. What's the purpose of flattery? To get you to like me. It's manipulative. So we're not talking about flattery. We're not talking about manipulation to get someone to do what you want them to do. We're talking about true sympathy, true caring, and true forbearance with another person. This is what demonstrates God's character and commends what we believe to other people. Now let's look secondly at this concept that's taught here. That is that kindness is contrary to our fallen nature. Paul says... As we read, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. And what is the contrary of kindness? Here's the big problem with kindness. It's just simply selfishness. The biggest enemy of kindness is selfishness, being focused upon ourselves. Kindness comes from being focused upon other people. And where does selfishness come from? It comes from the mother of all sins, pride. The reason I'm selfish is because I think I deserve to be selfish. I make myself uh, numero uno because I think I am numero uno. And therefore, I can ignore your needs and I can tend only to, to mine. It comes right straight from pride. And you're going to find that pride is at the very heart of sinful man. It's at the very heart of your natural fallen being. 
And therefore, gentlemen, we have a battle on our hands. Now, in Paul's time, of course, this pride was being worked out in a moralistic religious structure. Where does all moralism come from? Where does all legalism come from? Where does all trying to make ourselves acceptable before God by things that we do comes from this same source, pride? And you find in a legalistic, moralistic environment like the one Paul was preaching into, these people who had been influenced by a moralistic version of Christianity, which was a perversion. It was a moralistic, in this case, a legalistic version of Christianity, or perversion of Christianity. What's ha- what happens? Their pride is expressed in their religious traditions, and then they naturally become selfish. And you look at this list of things that Paul gives us uh, in uh, verse, verses 19 following, especially in, verses, uh, in verse 20. Look at this. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. All of those relational sins, they find a breeding ground with the people who are trying to find their acceptance before God based on their own performance. Because when you're seeking to do that, it is the result of pride. Paul says later on in the next chapter, the only reason these people want you to be circumcised is so that they can boast over you. And then they can boast over their own accomplishments, their self-righteous accomplishments. So what you'll find is, and don't you, don't you just from experience, you find that church disunity is always bred in a context of self-righteousness, self-centeredness. And people have dissensions and jealousies and envies and fights and squabbles because they are self-centered. Where you find a real religion of grace being taught, the only religion that does so, which is the religion of our Lord Jesus Christ, where you find people who are celebrating what He has done for them, what they couldn't do for themselves, where they are the object of God's grace, they tend to give kindness and grace to other people. So it's very natural that the Apostle Paul would take on all these jealousies and envies and dissensions and factions because that's exactly what happens when you fall into a Judaizing way of trying to know God by mere law-keeping. It's going to happen. Because you're condemning yourself to begin with and you're trying to overcome that self-condemnation and you end up condemning other people as well. So the social implications of the gospel are always there. If you're on target with the gospel, you will find love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If you're off, you'll find dissensions, jealousies, and discord. Now, I know there are lots of uh, combinations and permutations. I know there are lots of intricacies and nuances in that statement. But generally speaking, that's the consistency that you see in the apostles' gospel. What you believe does lead to your social behavior. And gentlemen, that's the reason that in all of our churches, it is so important for us always to be promoting peace for two reasons. One is, if we don't experience peace in our churches, we are denying the gospel that we seek to proclaim to the community. Secondly, if we don't know peace in our churches, we probably don't know the gospel. And so by dealing with the lack of peace in your church, you're having an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and to test people to see if they know the gospel. And sometimes people didn't know they didn't know the gospel until they see how far off they are from the lifestyle of the gospel and men like you will challenge them with these things. So keeping the peace of the, of the uh, church, 
Keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is absolutely constituent to the life of the gospel itself. So kindness is going to be a battle because it is contrary to our fallen nature. Now, before we look at the two subpoints under this, I want to just simply say this, that there are two ways in which kindness generally is to be expressed. There are two fundamental challenges to our spirit of kindness. The first one has to do when someone sins against you, where forgiveness is required. The second one is when you find someone in need one way or another and you seek to bring relief. So it's in forgiveness and relief that you generally express your kindness. And you will find massive challenges to you in both of these areas not to express kindness. Even take the prophet Jonah when he was told to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel of God. Why did he not want to go to Nineveh and preach repentance and forgiveness? Because the Ninevites had been so unkind to the Israelites. The Ninevites were brutal people. Brutal. And they had brutalized the Israelites. And Jonah said, I'll be damned if I'm going to Nineveh. And he almost was. Thrown over, over the boat. And God rescued him by the big whale. And showed Jonah, first of all, God's kindness. He sent a fish along when his feet were being tangled up in the seaweed. And blub, 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 his last minute, you know, his life was passing before him. All of a sudden, whoop, big fish comes by. Picks him up, spits him out in the, and I'm sure that when he got spit out on the, on the seashore, instead of having that nice sort of Jewish tan, you know, I'm sure the acids in that stomach of the fish had just, you know, made him look like an albino completely. And he gets out, you know, and he, and he, he says these profound words, salvation is of the Lord. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's a picture of salvation. You had nothing to do with it but the sin that made it necessary. Big fish comes along, swallows you up, spits you out safely on the shore. Okay, now we get it. Salvation is of the Lord. So now Jonah has been rescued from his hard-heartedness, his unkindness. He did not want to go to Nineveh. He instead went to Tarshish where he could have some fun with his friends. He was not going to express the kindness of God. He gets saved by a big fish. And then what does he do? He goes on and preaches to Nineveh and they massively repent. And what does Jonah do? Does he throw a big party? Hey, look at the power of the gospel. No, he goes out there and just cries in the desert. He's mad because these people repented. He said, Lord, I know you do that. That's the reason I want to preach. Look at the hard-heartedness of the preacher. And God's kindness just overwhelmed him so much so that He was obviously, even to this day, ashamed because of his unkindness. Listen, we have things within us that make us want to be very unkind. I suppose none of you would want to be really kind to one of the leaders of the Taliban. That might be a person that you, like Jonah, would want to go to hell. Just don't get in the gospel. He doesn't deserve it, does he? And underneath that feeling and that statement is this principle. You think you deserved it. (laughs) Look at the pride. See, pride always leads to unkindness. We forget where we came from. We forget how we got saved. It was by the kindness of God. And when God in His kindness saved us, He saved His enemies. And we forgot that we were enemies of God. Arch enemies. We were recruits on the other side. 
And God had kindness to the enemy. And that's how we got saved in the first place, by the kindness of God. That's the reason that we must be the experts in evangelizing not just our friends, but our enemies, because that's exactly what happened to us. So when you get some political enemies or military enemies or social enemies, hey, here's your opportunity to show the kindness of God because that's exactly what he did. And what's so interesting to me and sad among some Bible-believing Christians is that the only concern they have about immigration is that they're taking jobs. Of course, they're doing jobs that most people don't want to do, and they're working harder than most people work. Forget all that. They're just taking jobs. They're invading us. And that is the number one mentality among most conservative Christians who hold to a conservative political line. Now, I understand, as I've said before, our borders need to be properly guarded. They always should be. But there's something about the kindness of God that ought to be the primary agenda because it's the primary thing that we appreciate about God and His relationship to us. That's our primary concern is caring for people in need. Our primary concern is not to protect our borders. Our primary concern is to express the character of God. So you see how challenging it is in our corporate life as a community of peoples and then in our personal lives when people sin against us. But it's exactly what God has done for us. And this is not random acts of kindness, gentlemen. This is very specific and personal acts of kindness. Let's look at it. First of all, in kindness, we must forgive rather than retaliate. Retaliation is obviously our natural reaction. Forgiveness is God's reaction. Now, of course, you see this in Jesus' death on the cross. And you remember the famous seven last words. What's the first one in Luke 23? It's usually, traditionally, it's seen as the very first thing Jesus said. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine this? The greatest act of human injustice in all of human history was perpetrated against Jesus in that very moment. He was on the cross because of lies that were perpetrated against him, abject lies from people who hated him because he spoke the truth. He had shown nothing but deeds of love and kindness all his life and especially in his three years of public ministry. And he taught nothing but the truth of God. He was the picture of kindness. He always spoke the truth. And not only the Roman system, which was vaunted for its civil justice, but the rule of the Sanhedrin. Those two institutions threw him into to this act of injustice, and there he was. People were saying things like this. Oh, I see it's written right over you there, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, in three languages so that we would all understand it. Hey, if you're the king of the Jews, why don't you just pop on down out of there? Why don't you save yourself? If you're the Messiah, shouldn't the Messiah be able to save himself? Come on, Jesus. And then he had thieves on either side who were really bad actors, and they were pouring insults on him too. Insults from everywhere. How would you feel? No sympathy from any direction 
and the greatest act of injustice against you had been perpetrated. And here's what Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Absolutely remarkable. If you've heard Du Bois' seven last words, uh, how does that go, Dan? He is blood guilty or he, something like that. You, know, you had the choir screaming, he is blood guilty. You know, crucify him, crucify him. And then you have that, that single voice crying out, Father, forgive them. In the midst of all that clamor for the crucifixion of Jesus, Father, forgive them. And there's the picture. And it doesn't take long in the life of the church to see men copying that. Because do you remember our first martyr after Jesus was Stephen, the deacon? And Stephen went through and preached of the redemptive gospel through the Old Testament before the Pharisees that were listening to him. He had been arrested. And then he accused them of being the ones who put Jesus Christ to death. He explained to them the, the need for salvation and they stoned him. And while he was dying, being stoned, do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them. And then he said, in thy hands I commit my spirit or receive my spirit. Stephen had learned how to die. Stephen had learned how to be kind from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the reason the Apostle Paul later on in his ministry or toward the end of his ministry said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings becoming like Him in His death so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, I want to be like Jesus when He died. In other words, those seven last words, I want to take those in for my own life. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then when one of the thieves repented, he said, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then he looked at his dear mother and rather than thinking about the excruciating agony through which he was going, he looked at his mother and he said, Mom, behold your son. And he pointed to John. And he said, John, behold your mother. He was concerned about the two of them. Look at the incredible kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here more incredibly, you take fallen men like ourselves who know nothing but selfishness by nature, who know nothing of this kind of kindness by nature, and we are called to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How can we do such a thing? By the life of the Holy Spirit who enables us men who have had unjust acts and unjust words spoken against us and we now will forgive the perpetrators. Do we, do we suspend justice? No. Justice is always there. Do we not work out our differences? Yes, we work them out. Do we never defend ourselves? Of course. There are times when you must defend yourself too. But we do that with kind hearts, with forgiving hearts. So you can negotiate with someone and also be kind to them. You can confront someone even in a lawsuit and be kind to them. You can hammer out a major disagreement that you've got and also be kind and forgiving. So the, the Lord did those things. He didn't cease to confront His disciples. Get behind me, Satan, He said to Peter. And then when Peter had fallen in Jesus' kindness, He goes to him and says three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, who's having his heart torn out of his chest, said, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Then he said, then feed my sheep. And Jesus kindly gave Peter the opportunity to be restored and kindly gave Peter a share in his ministry to feed his sheep. What kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ toward us. And he calls us to imitate that. And when you have one of these moments where someone's been so unkind to you, 
When someone has attacked you, gentlemen, what you've got is an imminent opportunity to display the character of Jesus Christ. And if you walk in such a way that people don't do that to you, then I'm sorry, you don't have those opportunities. Most of the rest of us do. We've got many opportunities to be kind. I think, for example, of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln. You know, uh, when, when Obama was picking his cabinet, it was kind of a motley crew, and Doris Kearns, uh, who had written the book um, uh, Team of Rivals, which was about Abraham Lincoln's cabinet, that book became very popular because they were saying, well, Obama's doing the same thing Lincoln's doing. Let me tell you, Obama's not doing the same thing Lincoln did. Lincoln picked men that he felt would be the best men for the job, regardless of what they had said about him. And, of course, the classic case was the Secretary of War, Edwin, uh, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Stanton, before he was made Secretary of War, had spoken publicly about the imbecility of Lincoln's leadership in the war. And while he was Secretary of War, get this, he called, you know how Lincoln was, was not going to get you know, GQ's poster child award for being the best looking president ever. You know? uh, and, and Stanton called him a big baboon. Now imagine the Secretary of Defense calling Obama that. How long do you think that he would last in office? But Lincoln continually overlooked that. Now, some may say that was political foolishness. But the ages have shown maybe not. And here's why. Lincoln said he's the best man for the job. When Lincoln lay dying on his bed and Secretary Stanton was there, here's what Stanton said. Surely he must be the greatest leader on the face of the earth. Gentlemen, kindness breaks through. Kindness communicates in every language. Kindness that will forbear an offense. Kindness that will forgive a big sin is the kindness of God. And by that time in Lincoln's life, fortunately for him, uh, by his death, he had been converted to be a Christian as well. And people are surprised by kindness. And sometimes they're surprised by Christian kindness because sometimes our public demeanor is not one of kindness. It's of shouting at people and telling them how wrong they are and how much better we are morally. Uh, some of you who have read Donald Miller's books, you, uh, if you read the one Searching for God Knows What, <laughs> he's, got these, he's the one who wrote Blue Like Jazz, but I think it was in Searching for God Knows What. Uh, he tells this story of how some students at Reed College, which is a very liberal, liberal arts college, and... Uh, a wild place uh, out on the West Coast, from, from at least from what Donald Miller says. And they every spring they have these big bacchanalia feasts, and, and people will walk the campus without clothes. I mean, this, this place is wild. I mean, Taylor, we wouldn't send you there for a minute. You, you know, we wouldn't trust you over there. So as soon as I start, he starts laughing, you know. So, Taylor, you're not going to read college. You cannot go there. But this place is wild, especially in the springtime. And here's what Reed said. I'm, I'm sorry. Here's what uh, Donald Miller said that the few Christians on the campus did. During the Bacchanalia feast, they decided to have, put up a tent in the main quad and they put up a little sign and it said, Confessional Booth. <laughs> well, of course, nobody came until the weekend had really gotten going and people had gotten all juiced up and now somebody wants to go try the confessional booth out. 
So they go over there half-sauced into the confessional booth. And there's a guy sitting there. And he said, well, please sit down. And the Christian confesses the sins of the Christians on the campus to this half-drunk Bacchanalia feaster. And he's just slack-jawed. He cannot believe what he's hearing. He was coming in prepared to be cynical and joke around with them and, you know, make fun of them. And the Christian is confessing their self-righteousness and their moralism and their unkindness on their, and on their life on the campus. The guy walks out with tears. Before the weekend is over, you can't get in because the line is so long. It's because someone just took an idea and they realized, you know, let's be radically kind. And let's see how that communicates. And I tell you what, it communicates better than the most eloquent speech. It's just simple deeds of kindness. So we must forgive rather than retaliate. And you'll notice that in the life of the Apostle Paul, I've listed here one little instance in his life, and it's one that's probably forgettable by most people, but it's just tucked away here in Second Timothy in chapter 4. In his last letter, he's now in prison. He's going to be executed soon. And he's writing to Timothy. And he's telling Timothy about his problems. And he says in verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Of course, just like Jesus, everybody's terrified. So Paul, who had been serving people faithfully, he gets into trouble. What do they do out of their fear? They run and abandon him. And he's left alone. But look what he says. May it not be held against them. It's amazing. Paul's alone in prison. He doesn't have his parchments. He asks Timothy to bring parchments. He doesn't have his cloak. He's cold. He's abandoned. Lord, don't hold this against them. And then he goes on to say why, of course, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So the Lord was with him. When you have the Lord with you, why would you, why would you be unkind? Why would you be in a complaining mode? You've got the Lord. You've got eternal life. And so you can express the kindness of God to others. This is the way it works, gentlemen in the life of the Spirit. This is the life of the Spirit. This is the Christian life. And we need to hold each other accountable for this life. And when someone here that you know well well, is in a retaliatory mode, in a get-even mode, and you see it with them, gentlemen, you've got to intervene. The, The 125 or so of you that are in small groups, we ought to be talking about this. How do we need to pray for each other and hold each other accountable for non-retaliatory behavior? Once again, I'm not talking about no justice. I'm not talking about not negotiating or coming to conclusion on matters or resolving conflicts. uh, you You need to be vigorous about that. But from your heart, there's a forgiveness that comes from the kindness of the Lord. And then secondly and lastly, we notice that if kindness is in forbearance and in patience and sympathy, then we must serve rather than be served. We must serve rather than be served. This is how kindness works. You see it in the life of the Lord Jesus. I just pulled out some verses there. I mean, just look at his life. It's just a string of kindnesses. And then right before he was to be crucified, you remember this extraordinary act of kindness that pictured what he was doing in the incarnation and the crucifixion. He washed their dirty feet, which was the task of the lowest servant in the house. It was the task of a slave. 
And Jesus took the slave task of washing our feet. And then he said, you must do likewise. You must wash one another's feet. So he showed us how to lower ourselves, serving one another, and taught us to serve each other. Take the low seat at the feast. And let me just ask, in your church as well as in ours, isn't it true that where you always have to recruit is to work, have people work in the nursery? Isn't it always true that where you have to work is to get someone to clean the bathrooms? Isn't it true that the lowest tasks, the most difficult tasks, the most obscure tasks, those are the ones that we, we're always finding ourselves recruiting for? Why? Because we are not naturally kind. But the Lord is naturally kind. And He supernaturally gives His nature to us in kindness. I just uh, remember reading some years ago uh, Rebecca Pippert's book, Is It Out of the Salt Shaker? And I believe it's in that book. Maybe I heard her say this somewhere, but I believe it's in the book she tells about back in the 60s on the West Coast in a very upscale Presbyterian church. I know some of you can't imagine those two things going together, but this was an upscale Presbyterian church. And everyone there was in their three-piece suits and you know, dressed to the hilt. And in comes sort of a beachcomber, a hippie, uh, Right and obviously seeming to make some sort of a point, and right in after the service had started, and everyone's seated. This hippie, long hair, uh, hadn't probably hadn't bathed in a long time. Uh, blue jeans with holes in them, tie-dyed shirt. He walks right down the middle aisle and sits on the floor in front of the first pew. And Rebecca said. Everybody just went, oh, my stars. You know, the kids went, hey, this is going to be a good Sunday. (laughs) This is cool. What are they going to do? One of the old elders who happened to be ushering that day saw what happened. So in his three-piece suit, he walks right down the middle aisle, and everyone is very tense. What is going to happen here? He goes up right to where that hippie is, and he sits down on the floor right next to him and worships God. Gentlemen, it's just kindness. It's just loving people. And this is the way the gospel gets expressed. And our words have no weight. There's no gravity to our words without kindness. You know, one of the pictures of kindness, John Adamson, are you here? Good, I can speak behind his back because uh, otherwise it would embarrass him. I, I, you, know, you remember these little things, but I just remember coming out of church one day and I'm usually one of the last ones to leave the parking lot. I think my car is about the last one. Maybe there's one or two there. But I come out to my car and there's a car over there and there's John Adamson standing next to that car with jumper cables. I say, John, what's wrong? Your car won't start? He said, oh, no. He said, uh, I just noticed this car had its lights on during the service and I couldn't, it was locked. I couldn't get in, turn the lights off. I thought I'd just wait here until they come out. Now, that was 12 years ago. And it's just emblazoned in my mind. Just a simple act of kindness and thinking about somebody else after church instead of the restaurant that you need to get, where you need to get your table before everybody else, especially when the preacher preaches a little long. Simple acts of kindness really do change the world. And of course, the great, the most wonderful story of all 
is the story of the Good Samaritan. And we won't take time to unpack it. But isn't it true that it was the religious people who passed by? After the man had been stripped naked and beaten and left half dead, they couldn't touch him because he would make them unclean. Or we could say we couldn't stop because it would make me late to church. It was, the, it was the religious people, the religious leaders that passed by. And wasn't it the non-believer, seemingly? Wasn't it the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan, who stopped and showed an act of kindness and took the man to an end and provided for him and told the innkeeper, whatever he needs, you give it to him and I'll come back and pay you back. And when Jesus was describing who our neighbor is, he said, now which one was a neighbor to the man? And the teacher, the expert in the law, couldn't help but say, well, I suppose it was the one who had mercy upon him. Well, I suppose it was. And Jesus said, will you go and do likewise? You imitate the one that was a neighbor. And sometimes we find that it's the one who doesn't even know the Lord Jesus Christ who sometimes shocks us and reminds us how unkind we are. I remember the story of Gandhi who was getting on his train one day in India and his sandal dropped off his foot and the train kept rolling and he couldn't get his sandal. And the people around him were amazed. He took off his other sandal and threw it back. And they said, why did you do that? And he said, well, a poor man's going to come and only find one sandal. And this will be the only way it would be useful to him to have two sandals. Just like that, instinct of kindness, caring for other people. Begin with those who are closest to you and develop a strategy for kindness for those that God has assigned you. If you have a wife, you're assigned to be the primary messenger of God's kindness to her. Your name is husband. You care for her like a husband takes care of a garden. He, in husbandry, you care for a garden. You're a shepherd. If you have children, you're a primary communicator of the kindness of God to your children. If you're in church, you have brothers and sisters in church and they're your primary object to demonstrate the kindness of God. Develop a strategy for radical kindness to the ones God has given you. And as He gives you other opportunities, even on your way to work today, show the kindness of God because it speaks in every language of the world and it alone displays the life of the Spirit. James W. Alexander said, He is too busy who is too busy to be kind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of the Spirit. We're overwhelmed by your kindness. And we would be overwhelmed by our calling to kindness, but that you live within us and you promise to help us. And most of us here admit, beginning with the teacher today, that we have a pretty low starting point, that we're very aware of our selfishness and our self-centeredness. We're very aware of our tendency to retaliate and to defend ourselves and to put others down. And we pray that you will just take over our lives, that we may demonstrate Jesus Christ to a watching world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.